Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Amen. Good morning, Crosspoint. What a joy it is to be with you again, and I pray that you were able to sing the words of that powerful song, that it is well with your soul. Well, if you have a Bible, open it with me, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. As I mentioned last week, we have been working through the New Testament letter of James, and we're hitting the pause button on our series in James during this time of isolation until we can gather back together again in the same place and finish up chapter 5. So in the time being, for the time being, we're going to look at selected, selected texts and what these texts would say to us in this time when we need to remind ourselves and be anchored to the gospel. And this morning we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. As you're finding that, um, let me just mention one thing that I miss about not being able to gather together with you is that I just noticed it in particular this morning as I was singing just off of camera there as we were worshiping, how good it is to have you drowning out my voice. And uh, I was listening to myself sing and uh, cringing, and it made me long for the day when we can all gather together in this room and you can, you can make me sound good as you overtake my my voice. Well, let me read 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, and then I'm going to pray, and we're going to work through this powerful text. The Apostle Paul writes this, starting in verse 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us to understand this text and apply it to our lives. Lord, thank you for this passage, for this letter, for the Apostle Paul, for the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to cause him to write these words that we so desperately need to heed and to understand and to apply to our lives today. Lord, as we gather virtually over this live stream, we do thank you for technology, but we also pray that it would serve to produce in us a deeper longing and appreciation for the gathered church, the physically gathered church, when we can all be together again in this room. And on that note, Lord, we think of all of our sister churches that believe the gospel and preach from this Bible around our city, around the world. Thank you for Winbrook Baptist and for Calvary Baptist and for Christ Community and for Westminster Presbyterian and St. Andrew's Presbyterian and Berean Covenant and numerous other churches in our city that 
preach the gospel and believe that Jesus is the only way. Lord, we think about our sister churches around the world. I think about King Jesus Church in Busega, right outside of Kampala, Uganda. We pray your blessings on that sister church. Lord, we pray for Belgium Bible Church in Belgium, India, for Kalapur Bible Church in Kalapur, India, and for Nasik Baptist Church in, in Nasik, India. We pray your blessings upon those congregations as they endure this crisis. Lord, thank you for Brackenhurst Baptist Church in Johannesburg, South Africa, and for New Life Church in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates, and countless other churches that believe this same gospel. Lord, encourage those congregations and those pastors in this time, and encourage us now as we look at your word. Help us to see beautiful things from your word. Encourage your people. Build us up. Make us more like Christ. Fortify us. And for any of our friends that are watching that do not yet know Jesus, I pray that you would give them a new heart so that they can believe in Christ. And I pray all these things for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I have three goals in this message as we look at this text. The first is just to give a brief explanation of this text to to understand what it's saying. And then secondly, to to answer this question, what does this text in 2 Corinthians have to say to Christians in a coronavirus world? And then thirdly, what does this text have to say to any of you, any of my friends that may be listening that are not yet trusting in Christ? So first, we want to understand the text. Secondly, what does this text say to us specifically as Christians in a coronavirus world? And then thirdly, What does this text say to any friends that may be listening that are not yet trusting in Christ? First, a brief explanation of the text. Now, again, we're we're parachuting down into 2 Corinthians. That's not our usual manner or mode. We like to work our way through books of the Bible from beginning to end. And so we're parachuting down into the end of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And so I think it would be helpful for us just to understand the context of this whole letter of 2 Corinthians. Paul is writing this second letter to this church in Corinth that he planted, that you can read about in the book of Acts. I think it's in Acts chapter 18. And he's writing this second letter, and it's primarily a defense, a sustained defense of the authenticity and the authority that Paul had as a true apostle. And the reason that he needed to defend his ministry is because there were many false apostles that were coming after him after he had left Corinth. They were coming after him and were leading the church astray. And one of the critiques that the, these false teachers, these false apostles, as he calls them, them in his letter, one of the critiques they had of Paul was that he was weak, that he wasn't very powerful in his personal gifting and, and, and persona, and he didn't really have the marks of somebody that really would be a kind of impressive leader of God's people. And so Paul, in 2 Corinthians, is refuting those false critiques and, and really talking about his authority as an apostle. And here in verse 7, we see that he, he's, he's, 
He's, he's going in on this defense of his apostleship. And he's saying that, here, let me read verse 7 again, that to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, and he's referring to these revelations that he spoke about earlier, in fact, at the beginning of chapter 12, these great revelations that God gave him years before when he was caught up in this, this third heaven, as he calls it. In other words, this this time of, of communion with God where God gave him this special revelation of the mystery of the gospel so that he would be the apostle that took the gospel to the Gentile world. He's saying here in verse 7, to keep me from being conceited because of this experience, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now, what can we say about Paul's thorn? Much, much ink has been spilt about this particular issue. What was Paul's thorn? That's the question. Was it, a, was it a physical malady? Was it a sickness? Was it a spiritual thing? Was it a habitual sin that he was dealing with? Was it some external situation? Maybe he was referring to the opponents that he was fighting. Was it external? Was it internal? We don't know. The Bible doesn't specifically tell us the nature of this thorn that Paul was dealing with. And I think we should be content with that ambiguity. In fact, I am certain that God intends for there to be some ambiguity about what Paul's thorn in the flesh was so that we would not write ourselves out of the application. Because here's the point. If Paul speaks very specifically about what he was going through, then we might be prone to say, oh, well, that situation applied to Paul and not to me. We, by nature, are prone to make our situation the exception. And God here intends to make this a broad application for all of the Christian life. I think we all do that. In fact, the Bible warns us not to do that, to write ourselves out, to make our situation the exception. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And then in 1 Peter chapter 5, another reminder not to write ourselves off. I think that we are the exception to the circumstance. This is what Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So my point is this, is that we don't know exactly what Paul's thorn in the flesh was, and I think that's designed by God so that there would be broad application of what Paul says after this and what the purposes of God are for Paul and giving Paul this thorn in the flesh so that it would apply to us as well. And notice before we move on to verse 8, notice the motivation behind the thorn. Paul says it twice. It's a kind of sandwich in verse 7 there. He gives the motivation behind this thorn at the beginning and the end of this verse. And what is that motivation? It is to keep him from becoming conceited. And notice that he says that this thorn was sent to him and it was given to him and it was a messenger of Satan to harass him. So notice this, this, the bread in this sandwich. 
beginning of verse 7, to keep me from being conceited. The end of verse 7, to keep me from being conceited. And in the middle, this thorn was given to him through the means of a messenger of Satan to harass him. What is this telling us? It is telling us, it's giving us this picture that Satan here in this verse is being used by God for God's good purposes in Paul's life. Note that, friends, don't miss this. Satan is merely an instrument in God's sanctification tool bag in the life of Paul. All right, let's hurry on to verse 8. Three times, Paul says, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. He's asking God to take this thorn from him, and that's a valid prayer. But notice here that, as we'll read, that the Lord does not answer Paul's prayer in the way that Paul was hoping. Here's the point, friends. God hears the prayers of his people, and he always answers the prayers of his people. But sometimes we need to realize, and I get this from verse 8 and following, that sometimes God's answers to our prayers is no. And it's always because God has something better intended for his people. Now, we all understand this principle in just everyday life. Let's, 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 not, let's not miss just the simplicity of this. Think of a young toddler who asked their father, a three-year-old that asked their father for the whole batch of cookies or the whole bag of sweets. And the dad says no because, because he knows that that will be bad for the child. Well, there's a much greater gap between us and our infinite God than between an earthly father and a young toddler. God knows best, and oftentimes God's answer to our prayers is no for some greater good. Let's get on to verse 9. He says, listen to verse 9. But he said to me, this is Paul talking about God's response, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Take note of how Paul thinks of grace. Now, in this instance, he's speaking about grace not merely as this component in our salvation that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as powerful and as important and as central as it is to the Christian life. Clearly, Paul believes that, that we are saved. In fact, Paul teaches this in Galatians and Romans and all throughout the New Testament, that we are saved not by our works, not by our righteousness, but by what Christ has done, by his works, by his obedience, by his perfection and his sacrifice on the cross. And then God takes our dead hearts through no merit of our own, through no action on our part, but simply because of his sovereign grace, he gives us a new heart, and this new heart is equipped with faith, whereby now we are enabled to trust in Jesus for right standing, for reconciliation, to receive all the benefits of his obedience. That's saving grace. But the grace that Paul is talking about here, the aspect that Paul is talking about, isn't just merely saving grace, as important as that is, but it's the sustaining grace of the gospel that God gives his people, not just to save them at the moment of their conversion, but to live with them and abide in them and help them every day. This is the grace of God's 
presence in our lives. It's the daily bread of sustaining grace. It's the promise that God gives his people that I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. And what Paul is saying here in verse 9 is that Jesus is telling him that he will be with him. Not necessarily to remove this thorn, but to give him the endurance, the strength to endure underneath the good hand of God in this trial. And he concludes that in this he will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now let's hurry on to verse 10. Paul then says, he concludes, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Notice Paul's reaction, his response, what he concludes from God's answer to his prayer. His logic is that, well, if this is what God has assigned to me in my life, if this this is what God has called me to, to not remove this trial, not remove this thorn, but to give me sufficient grace to endure it, therefore then, because of Christ, for the sake of his glory in this world and in my life, I am content. I will take pleasure in. I will find joy in my weakness, whether it is an internal thing or an external thing, whatever we're facing, Paul is, is, is telling us here that we can take pleasure, we can find contentment in the circumstances that we're in because God has a purpose in it. And what Paul is saying here is that these things that I'm facing, that God is by his sovereign hand causing me to endure, serve in some way to put on display the sufficiency of Christ over and against this world. And Paul is concluding, in that I can boast. And then he goes even further and he says, when I am weak, then it puts me in a particularly beautiful situation so that I can display Christ even in ways that I couldn't display him when I'm in a position of self-sufficiency. So as God is stripping Paul of his self-sufficiency, something is being displayed in Paul's life. It is the sufficiency of Christ. And he gets at this earlier in this same letter. Listen to what he says in chapter 4 of this same letter, 2 Corinthians verse 7. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. Another translation says earthen vessels, these cracked pots. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show, to put on display that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So there's Paul's logic, and he's repeating it here in verse 10 of chapter 12, that God's sufficiency is more clearly displayed and seen in our lives when it's obvious that the strength to endure doesn't come from us, but it comes from God who is giving it to us. Friends, that's Paul's point here. He's saying that we, he's concluding that he and we were not made to be made much of. Rather, we were made to make much of God. 
And when we endure a thorn in the flesh, a trial, whatever it may be, whatever the nature may be, we are poised, unlike any other time in our lives, when we don't have or are not facing those thorns, we are poised to reflect God's glory. In fact, that's what we're made to do, to reflect God's glory and not to receive it. So then the question is, what does this text have to say to Christians in a coronavirus world? Well, two things I think this text has to say to us that I want us to think about. First, it is clearly this, that nothing, dear ones, nothing comes to us that does not first pass through the Lord's fatherly hands. Nothing in our lives, nothing came to Paul, nothing came to any of his people in the Bible, and nothing comes to any of his children that does not first pass through the Lord's fatherly hands. Remember the language of this text. It says a thorn was sent. If something's sent, then there's a sender behind the thing that's being sent. And who's the one that's doing the sending? Well, clearly it's not Satan, because what is the intention of the sending of this thorn? It was the good intention to keep Paul from being conceited. Now, whatever Satan's plans were for Paul's life, whatever he intended to do with this thorn, it wasn't to produce some good spiritual fruit of humility, the enemy, Satan, would want the opposite in Paul's life. And certainly he had bad intentions for Paul's life. We know that. He has bad intentions for our life. But beyond, behind Satan's intentions is this greater intention, which is the good intention of God, who is using Satan as his tool in his sanctification workshop in Paul's life and in our lives. And friends, we can hold on to that. Whatever we're facing, whatever this virus is doing, whatever, it, whatever havoc it wreaks on our culture, behind it all is a good God who is working all things together for the good of his people and for the glory of his name. And we can fasten ourselves to that truth. Listen, listen to this, this, beautiful, this beautiful old confession of the church, the Heidelberg Catechism a wonderful document written as a result of the Protestant Reformation in Heidelberg, Germany in the mid-1500s. A catechism was just a kind of question and answer format whereby Christians have historically taught one another the, the tenets of the Christian faith. And these Protestant Christians coming out of the Protestant Reformation in Germany, in Heidelberg, Germany, wrote this catechism. And the first question says this, what is thy only comfort in life and death? The answer, that I with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live for him. Friends, I think 
these Christians back in the 1500s in Heidelberg, Germany, are summarizing well this idea that Paul is getting at here in 2 Corinthians, that all things, even the things that are trials and thorns, are somehow ordained by God in the lives of his children to produce, in fact, they are subservient to God's will in our life to produce in us more longing for God and less of this world, more of Christ, more of his glory on display in my life. And so we can know that nothing comes to us that doesn't first pass through his fatherly hands and everything that passes through his hands and comes to us is for our good. The second thing that I think we can, we can take what this text is saying to us in a coronavirus world is that God is glorified in our weaknesses which results in our greater joy. God is glorified in our weaknesses, which results in our greater joy. Now let's confess that we live in the most comfortable, the most advanced, the most technologically savvy, the most militaristically powerful country and society in the history of civilization. And we are a people, we are a culture that is allergic to weakness. In fact, we shun weakness. But the Bible actually takes us in the opposite direction. This, this text, Paul is confessing that when I am weak, then I'm in a particularly beautiful position to actually display the glory of God in my life like I wouldn't be if I were in a place of comfort or strength. Now, this doesn't mean we need to go search out weakness and thorns in our flesh, but it is to say that when they come to us, when thorns in the flesh or pandemics strike our world and affect our very lives and strip us of our health and maybe our finances and bring us to a place of weakness, that this is exactly why the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write this text, because it's in those moments of weaknesses which God is most clearly displayed in our lives. And it's in God's display in our lives that we actually find the most joy because God is more clearly seen in our lives and nothing, nothing satisfies the human soul. That's what we were made to do, to display him. And when we are, we're stripped of everything else that we are so subconsciously prone to depend on and we have nothing else but God to depend on, friends, that satisfies our souls. And God in his kindness may be doing this very thing in our lives, in our church, in your life today, making our weaknesses an opportunity to wean us from this world and deepen our joy in him, which then makes him more glorified in our lives, which he uses to bring unbelievers to himself. Friends, what else is more important than that? And Paul's logic is that I will boast, that I will be content in, that I will gladly glory in this, that God is more, more clearly seen in my weakness. So he concludes, when I'm, when I'm weak, then I'm, I'm strong. Friends, true joy, Paul is saying, comes in having God's glory more clearly seen in our lives not receiving it for ourselves. True joy 
And friends, I just admit, this is easy to preach. It's easy to say. It's much harder to be aware of in your own life. So I'm not, I am not saying in any way that I have mastered this. I just see this in the text. And, and I'm, just, I'm just, just telling you what I think the text says. And let's all strive. Let's, let's be aware that this is what God is doing. And let's fight for this. Let's fight for this mindset. Friends, true joy comes in being utterly aware of our total dependence on God. Now, friends, that's easy to preach. That's easy to say. That's easy to write in my notes. And that's harder to live. Let's admit it. Let's confess it. But friends, we have this opportunity to fight for this type of joy, to remind ourselves of this type of joy, to pray, to confess that we are not naturally inclined to feel this type of joy or to seek our joy in these things. We are, by our nature, prone to run the opposite direction of weakness and not embrace it. And this text is calling us to find joy and contentment in this thorn which God has sent for our good. So friends, let's fight. Let's fight for this. This is a great opportunity, friends. This is a great opportunity for us to grow as a church, for us to grow as children of God in dependence on our Father. Well, finally, what does this text have to say to my friends that may be listening that, that are not yet trusting in Christ? You, you're just maybe tuning in out of curiosity, and you may think, you may admire some Christians in your life, you may admire the Christian message. You think it might be good for society on some level, but you don't, you don't really believe it. I think there's a lot of people like that. In fact, I think that's the majority mindset of most of our world and culture. What does this text have to say to you? What does this idea that God's grace is sufficient have to say to you? Now, you may, and I think you probably do, consider yourself a relatively moral person. And you know what? You probably are compared to all of the wicked people out there in the world. You may think that you know, you're basically a decent, well-intentioned person. And you very well likely may be. But I want to ask you a question. Are you sure that that is sufficient are you sure that that is enough? Friends, the Bible is clear that we will all stand before a holy God someday. We will all stand before our Creator. We will all die. We will all pass from this life into the next. And God is very clear in the Bible that there is only two eternal destinies for all all souls, every person, every boy, every girl, every man, every child, it's eternal fellowship with him forever with his son Jesus, or it is to be cast away from him eternally. Are you sure that your life and your goodness is sufficient to commend you before this holy good God? Friends, this is the most important question that you can ask yourself. And you might say, well, you know, I've done these good things and God knows my heart and I'm not as bad as the guy down the street. And on some human level, that may be true. But friends, the question is, 
How many good things, how many good intentions, how much relative morality in your life is enough? Where's the cutoff line? And wouldn't God actually be wicked to draw the line somewhere sort of arbitrarily in the middle? I mean, if there's, if there's a kind of in and there's an out, there's got to be a line somewhere. And what about the guy who's just right up to the line? And he just, if he would have just done one more good thing, if he would have just had one more good intention, then he would have made it in. Friend, if you think about sort of that system of righteousness by our own works, friends, it's actually quite cruel. No, friends, the Bible is very, very clear that the only thing that will be sufficient when we stand before God on that day is the grace that can be found in his son, Jesus. And here's the good news of the gospel, is that we we are not saved by our good works. In fact, the Bible says that even the best among us, if a thing can be said, even the best among us, our righteousness, our good works, our morality... It's like filthy rags before God. It won't do anything to commend us to God on that day. But the good news of the gospel is that God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, to become a man like us, to be tempted and always as we are yet without sin and to obey, not just to sort of live up to the commandments of God, not just to have good intentions, but to perfectly obey God in the flesh in every way, sinless in his life, and then to lay down his sinless life on the cross to take the punishment for our sins, to take God's wrath that was pointed at us because of our rebellion. And Jesus takes the wrath of God on the cross. He satisfies it. He removes it. He extinguishes it. And he turns God's wrath, God's right justice, which we deserve because of our rebellion, he turns it into grace and favor. And he gives his righteousness to those whom he saves. And so when God saves a person, this is why grace is so glorious. God actually gives a person a new heart. He wakens them from their reliance on themselves and he shows them that they have no righteousness that can commend them to him and he gives them a sense of their utter dependence on God. He, he, he reveals to us our weakness so that we will know that our only hope is in him. That's what God does. And he gives us his son Jesus. He gives us a new heart. He gives us the ability to believe in him. That's grace. Friends, that's the grace of the gospel. That's the grace of the good news of God. And that is the only thing. That's the only thing that will be sufficient for you in your life on that day when you stand before God. So friends, I'm not asking you to give your heart to Jesus. There's nothing in your heart that Jesus would see as commendable in none of our hearts. No, no, actually the, the reverse is true. Jesus needs to give you a new heart. And when he gives you a new heart, then you are enabled to trust in him, to believe in him, to follow him, to live for him. And here's the deal, friends. 
If you are aware of that right now, if you're aware that you have nothing to give, that you don't have a heart to give to Jesus because your heart is dead, there's no sufficiency in you, if you're aware of that, friends, God is making you aware of your weakness and he's showing you that there's nothing in you that's sufficient, but only what he has done is sufficient. And friends, I think that is evidence that God is giving you a new heart. So what does this text have to say to you? Only his grace is sufficient. Turn from trusting in yourself. Turn from your own righteousness. Turn from your good intentions and put your faith in what God has done through his son to save sinners like you and me through the sufficient grace of Jesus. Wherever you are right now, just turn. Just make a decision. Repent and believe. Trust in Christ. If you're doing that right now, friends, oh, we'd, love to, we'd love to hear from you. Email us. Send us a message through Facebook to our Facebook email or email our website. And one of the pastors and elders will follow up with you and will call you and encourage you. Friends, you must do that. The only thing that is sufficient to save you on that day is God's grace. Well, friends, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us live in this text For my brothers and sisters, this is a fight. The joy that comes from being utterly dependent on God is not naturally something that we're inclined to do. And so we need God's help. And let's press in. Let's fight. Let's fight for one another and with one another for this type of contentment in the sufficiency of his grace. Let's pray. Lord, take this text, I pray, and use it for our good. Fasten us to this truth. Anchor us to this truth that you are behind everything that touches us and your intentions are always good. Therefore, when we are weak, we know we're strong because Christ is more magnified in us. Therefore, we can walk in more joy because we're stripped away of all these temporal comforts and we know that you love us. We know that our future is secure. We know that we are your child. Therefore, we can be content. We can, in fact, we can even boast gladly in Christ. Lord, make that our posture. Let us fight for that daily during this time. And for my friends that may be listening that haven't trusted in Christ, Lord, show them that their only hope is the grace that you provide in your Son. Lord, I pray all these things for your glory and for our good, for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. I love you, Crosspoint. Can't wait to gather again together. Let's press on. Let's fight for joy in Christ this, this week. God bless.